0: We can turn back to Isaiah 53, and we can think together about 4 and 5, the second half of verse 4 and verse 5. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53 is a rather unusual chapter. Uh, normally in life, uh, witnesses are at the event. Normally, they have to see it happening in front of their eyes. Occasionally, somebody can come along after the event and uh, see or notice something that is important. But for witnesses to live centuries before the event happens, that is rather astonishing. The witnesses, well, they speak about the life and the death of Jesus. And they speak about him as those who have closely looked at him. I mean, a lot of the people who were literally at the cross, they didn't do much more than glance at him. After all, crucifixions were quite common. And indeed, on that occasion, they had three to look at. But they just walked, they that passed by, as we're told, they just gave their comment and moved on. But here in Isaiah 53, the witnesses are, they've been looking at him for years. We've seen that in verses two and following. They saw his life, what he looked like, how he lived. And as they say there in verse two, as they looked at him, they said, he has no form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, he was so ordinary He didn't even get a second look. Mentioned it before, but it is interesting that God has put it in his word that the only man in the Bible who has spoken as having no guile, he gave his estimate of what it was like to live in Nazareth. Nathaniel from Cana. Cana is six miles from Nazareth. Philip, after meeting Jesus, finds Nathanael and tells him, we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathanael, who has been living near Nazareth for all of his life, turns round and says to Philip, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel, he liked to read the Bible or think about it. Because when he met, or when Jesus met him, Jesus spoke to him about the passage that Nathaniel was thinking about. All these angels going up and down Jacob's ladder. But anyway, when he heard that Jesus came from Nazareth, can't be possible. Nothing good comes from there. So even the the spiritual didn't see him. And I think that's quite important to note. That even the devout in Israel didn't recognize Jesus, unless they were given special information like Simeon and Anna in the temple. But in the main, all those who are traveling to heaven in Israel at that time, none of them knew that their Savior lived in Nazareth. And the ones, and the ones here who are speaking, they just noted his sadness. Never asked why he was so sad. They just—he's like one from whom men hide their faces, despise. Who would want to walk down the high street of Nazareth beside Jesus? Well, going by this prophecy, nobody. And yet in verse 4, of course, we see there's a change. Change of perspective. Of course, misunderstandings are are dangerous, aren't they? If I happen to be driving along a road towards a bend and there's a man standing there waving at me, I might say to myself, well, that man knows me. And that would be a big misunderstanding if there's something around the corner, wouldn't it? Misunderstandings can be dangerous. Maybe the man should have more information. So maybe he should hold up a sign saying, Slow down. And I just come along and I say to myself, Who does that man think he is telling me to slow down? And since everybody else seems to be thinking the same as they all speed towards the corner, misunderstandings can be dangerous and uh, these people here these speakers they misunderstood who Jesus was and that obviously was very dangerous spiritually. but here we can see that in chapter f- verse four, The first two lines, as we thought about the last time, that describes his life. It tells us why he was so sad. The reason why he was sad is because he was carrying other people's sorrow. And that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, who else was going to carry their sorrow? I mean, there's lots of sad people in Inverness tonight who is carrying their sorrow. But there, Jesus, as Matthew tells us, when he was here on earth, he carried people's sorrows. He felt with them. He empathised. He saw their sadnesses. And it moved them to the heart. As we even see when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And we might have thought, well, his words to the sad people uh, should have been, cheer up. I'm going to do something about it. But that wasn't what he did, was it? We're told twice there by John that he sighed. Sighed deeply. I mean, one of the words that is used to describe his uh, sighing is the word that would normally be used of a horse snorting, which tells us that his sighing, was very loud anyway that's his life but there in the second half of verse 4 they move to his death and they confess what their initial thoughts about his death were they say that he, we esteemed him And, of course, the word esteem indicates there's been some kind of thinking about it. I mean, there's a connection between esteem and estimate, isn't there? So they looked at the suffering Christ, and they came to a conclusion that he had been stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted that was their initial thoughts, but they came to see they had a wrong view about his pain now we can see from the words that they use smitten stricken smitten by God and afflicted <clears throat> now they recognised that his pain was terrible They thought, since it was so bad, the only explanation for it is divine judgment. So I'd just like us to think about two things the inevitability of divine judgment and the truths they discovered, truths about themselves and truths about. Jesus. So the inevitability of divine judgment. Stricken. Where does that come from? How is the word stricken used in the Bible? That's always a good question to ask. How is a word used in the Bible? And the word stricken... Usually refers to somebody who is struck with leprosy and struck with it by God as a form of divine judgment. The obvious example of that is Isaiah, the king, who uh, thought, since he was the king, that he could intrude and in how the temple functions were done, and he discovered that he couldn't, and we're told about him that he was stricken uh, with leprosy uh, from that day on. And it kind of became symbolic, a symbolic way of referring to, to divine judgment, to say that somebody was stricken. It didn't mean that every person who sadly had this disease was stricken in divine judgment. But it became a kind of picture of it. And, of course, we can see it's divine judgment because linked to the word stricken is the statement smitten by God. That's a very graphic picture, isn't it? If we actually think about it, God raising his hand and hitting Jesus. And that's what it means, isn't it? Smitten by God. It's not God doing something from a distance. You don't smite somebody from the distance. If somebody punches somebody, you can't say I did that from a distance. It's a blow that's given at close quarters. And here, these observers, they say, it's what they're thinking, wrongly thinking, at least to begin with they're thinking that God has hit him because he deserves it. And we can also see that the outcome of this smiting was that Jesus was afflicted. And of course, afflicted describes something that's ongoing. You don't get afflicted for a couple of seconds. You get afflicted for a period of time. And as they looked at Jesus on the cross, they just said to themselves, yeah, God is judging him. And as the the experience for Jesus got worse and worse, they just said, he's been afflicted. Why did they think that? Why did they think that God was judging Jesus on the cross? Well, at least two reasons can be given for that. One, they thought he was guilty of blasphemy. I mean, remember when he healed the the man that tore the roof open to let down in front of him, and Jesus said to the man, you're healed, your sins are forgiven, and And then he said to them, in order to show that they had been forgiven, he healed him. The Jewish leaders were in the room. Their conclusion to this display of um, divine power was that Jesus was committing blasphemy. And of course, blasphemy in a Jewish world deserved punishment. They just looked at this man and his claim to forgive sin. Who can forgive sin but God only, is what they said. This man is pretending to be God. He's a blasphemer. And that accusation never left Jesus. Even when he's on trial. What does this blasphemer say? On top of that they accused him of witchcraft They said that he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub Nothing worse could be said to Jesus, could it? The Holy One But that's what they said to him, wasn't it? And even when Jesus pointed out to them the absurdity of their argument, I mean, how can Satan cast out Satan? But they persisted. He's not only guilty of blasphemy, he's guilty of witchcraft. And therefore he deserves to be punished by God. And when they saw him on the cross, Initially, that's what they thought was happening to him. God is dealing with him because of his, from their point of view, his perceived sins. But of course, we know that is not why he was there. But that was the accusations against him. Even though they were wrong. We do see something in what they say, don't we? Something to note what they expected. And what they expected was the reality of divine judgment. They thought wrongly that Jesus was guilty of two terrible sins and therefore he deserved to be punished by God. And they initially thought that what was happening to him on the cross was that, that punishment. But their skewed perception should remind us of the reality of divine judgment. I mean the Bible is full of that. And I think we're in danger of forgetting it. There's lots of examples we can mention. I mean, how long did it take God to judge Adam in the Garden of Eden? If we want to put it this way, how many bites of the fruit did he get? God has said to him in the day, you'd of it, you'll die. And God kept his word. Judgment came. And it's never gone away. Death came into the world. Physical death, although that didn't happen right away. Spiritual death, it happened right away. And eternal death, it started there and then. What, a, what an evidence of the di- inevitability of divine judgment. Or take the parable about the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus taught. I mean, that rich man, he's guilty of sins of omission. He didn't do a thing to help Lazarus he's also guilty of the sins of commission. All the selfishness he showed. Where does Jesus say he ended up? He tells us, isn't he, in hell. Then, of course, there's the cross itself. Not this distorted view that these people had of the cross. But our view of the cross. What does our view tell us? Tells us that God judges sin. And of course, there's a day of judgment yet to come. A very solemn day. Far more important than any day we've ever lived. It's inevitability. But then there's the truth they discovered, which is mentioned in verse 5. And in stating their truth there in verse 5, they have two names for sin. And they have four terms about the sufferings of Jesus. And they have two terms for the blessing that came their way. So it's quite a remarkable statement, verse 5 two names for sin, four terms about his suffering, and two blessings that came as a result. Their sins. They say there in verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. What do these words mean? They don't mean the same thing. There's, there's increases of intensity in these words. They don't mention the word sins here, but that's the least intensive, we might say. It just means to fall short. I mean, the normal illustration is of an archer trying to hit the bull's eye doesn't matter, he misses by an inch or by a mile, he's missed it. And we can fall short of God's standard. And if we don't know what God's standard is, then it won't bother us that we've fallen short. But that's not the word that they use here. Because it's not as strong as the words they choose to use. transgressions that means to go against what's required if a sign stands up if a sign is in a field and says no entry if we go into the field that's a transgression of course it all depends what the field is doesn't it But transgression means to just go beyond is to say to God, I'm in charge of my life and I can do what I want. And God will say, Really? And he might let us do it. But the account accountability will yet be brought into our experience. Every transgression will be dealt with by God. And they're guilty of all their transgressions. They sense it. And then there's the word iniquity. And that's the strongest word of all. Because it just doesn't only point to the power of sin but it points to the ugliness the horribleness of sin Lord well, we have thought yesterday if somebody had thrown some paint in the middle of the crowning ceremony Well, every sin against God is worse than throwing a tin of paint. For here they are, and now they've got no wish to hide their sins. They say it quite freely. He was wounded for our transgressions. No longer his own transgressions. He's wounded for our transgressions. And he's crushed for our iniquities. His personal, corporate we might say. They're saying, that's who we are. We thought he was the sinner. But we now discovered it is us who are the sinners. And of course that in itself indicates that the Holy Spirit has been working in their heart. The Holy Spirit has done it. There's a hymn that says somewhere, a sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Spirit has made him so. For somebody to actually realize it, that they are sinners, doesn't just mean that somewhere along a line I've fallen short here and there. It means that I've raised my fist against God. And if I had anything around me that I could throw in his face, I would throw it. But now they know that their transgressions and their iniquities had caused his suffering. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't the Jews. It was them. And as we think about their description of his death, the eyewitnesses before the event, They use four words to describe his experience. Wounded or pierced. They don't mean he was wounded once or that he was pierced once. Nor are they suggesting that we should count the number of times. But well, they are saying that whatever it was that happened to him, this is, this is a military word. I mean, the soldiers are go around wounding people. So here was this their assessment of Jesus. It's almost as if an army's against him. He was wounded for our transgression. And he's crushed. Crushed for our iniquities. you ever seen something that's been crushed? Perhaps you stood on in an insect and looked at it after you've done so. It's crushed. And Jesus on the cross, he's crushed. Some overwhelming power has come down on him. And the only word to describe his appearance, his experience, he's crushed. And if something is crushed, what's its future? We're also told that he was chastised. And of course the chastisement they have here is not somebody waving their finger at somebody. The chastisement that's here is to be lashed and to be lashed repeatedly without any sign of it coming to an end. Remember they're witnesses, they're looking at the cross. They don't know it's going to cease before sunset on Passover day. They're just being depicted as looking at him suffering and when's it going to end? And then there's his stripes or strokes. That words, stripes and strokes, it was used if you hit somebody with a club, or hit them with a rod or something. It was designed to weaken them. We're not to look at these descriptions literally. They're pictures, they're windows that help us look into the sufferings of Christ. And these witnesses are almost saying to us, it's not enough for them to say one thing. It's not enough to say that he was wounded, or that he was crushed, or that he was or that he had or that he was stricken or, or smitten. I have to say all of them. If we didn't know otherwise, we could almost say it's north, south, east, and west. They're coming from every direction. What happened to Jesus on the cross? Well, there's obviously his physical experience. It was terrible. I mean, normally, there's some degree of compassion. But for Jesus, not none. But beyond the human, what was happening at the cross? Beyond the soldiers who crucified him, What was taking place? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians that the powers of darkness were attacking him. I don't think we think about that very often. But they were. All the hosts of the dark kingdom. And what were they trying to do? What do they have to do to get Jesus to be a failure? As he's hanging there on the cross, fighting on our behalf, what do these enemies of his kingdom, what do they need to get him to do? Well, all he needs to do in order to be defeated is to have one wrong thought. That's all it requires. One expression of rebellion. That's all it took Adam to fail, wasn't it? And here's Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, and that's all it takes for him to fail. One wrong thought. It isn't just a, an occasional suggestion. It's persistent. Behind the scenes, the battle is raging. That's not the worst thing about the cross. It was bad enough, but having these enemies attacking them. But they are on the cross, and perhaps we'll see this next time, the wrath of God. He becomes an outcast, doesn't he? Why have you forsaken me? The only one that can ask that question is an outcast. A few, hour, few days before the cross he said, you may all leave me, but my Father is with me. That's not what he's saying now, is it? We sang these words. And I suppose the question comes to you and me. Is how did we sing them? Divine wrath. Infinite justice. whatever sin deserved crammed into a few hours and they see it but that's not all that they see because we are told what the two blessings are there in verse 5 Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I don't think everyday visitors to the public execution spot outside Jerusalem thought it was a place of peace. But they did. As they looked at the Awful experience that he was going through. And look at the tents they have. As they are witnesses, it has brought us peace. Peace is one of the great gospel words, isn't it? It describes the start of the Christian life. And it describes the progress of the Christian life. And it describes the end of the Christian life. Peace with God. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. All we have to do is trust in him. Although it seems to be the hardest thing for people to do. the moment we trust in Jesus, we are at peace with God, justified, his perfect life that they thought was so worthless, reckoned to our account. It never changes. Every Christian gets holier, but they never get more justified. And getting to heaven depends on our justification. Perfect. Perfect in the sights of God's justice. No claim against us. Peace. Peace with God. Reconciled. Shalom. Then there's the peace of God. That is how Paul describes the Christian life, isn't it? He repeats it in all his letters. Grace and peace to you. And he tells the Philippians, doesn't he, that the peace of God will protect your heart and mind. I mean in life it's guaranteed that our hearts and minds are going to be attacked what's going to protect them it's not our resolutions I'll do better next time that won't achieve anything for the peace of God my peace I give to you says Jesus at its most basic level, that means that we can go and ask him for it. Lord, give me your peace. At the end of the day, what is heaven But the world of peace? Nothing negative ever again. And they grasp it. It all depends on this man. This man who looks a real mess. But with his blows, his chastisement, we have peace. And if you want peace, you have to go to the cross. And if you haven't got peace in your heart, you should ask yourself where you've been going, religiously. And then with stripes we are healed, healing from the effects of sin. When someone believes in Jesus, Somebody who is spiritually dead becomes spiritually alive. And there, wherever they are, is the start of eternal life. Eternal life doesn't begin when they take their last breath in this world and cross the river. Eternal life starts in this world. And there's a real sense in which Sanctification is the evidence of healing. I'm going to stop in a minute, but I read this statement by Spurgeon. I thought what he said was very nice, so I'm going to read it. He's talking about this verse, with stripes we are healed. This is what he said. This is not a temporary remedy. It is a medicine, which, when it once gets into the soul, breeds therein health, that shall make that soul perfectly whole, so that at last, among the holy ones before the throne of God on high, that man shall sing with all his fellows, with his stripes, we are healed. Glory be to the bleeding Christ all honor, majesty, and dominion and praise be unto him forever and ever. And let all the healed ones say, Amen and Amen. Shall we pray?